You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Today, I'm going to begin in verse 4 of chapter 10, but let me just catch you up on the story a little bit before I do. A young Jewish girl named Esther has been named Queen, but no one knows yet that she is a Jew other than a few close family. Her cousin and guardian, whose name is Mordecai, has frustrated an evil official named Haman. And in response, Haman was not content to just destroy Mordecai. He has set out to destroy all the Jews living in the kingdom. In the opening verses of chapter 4, just before we're going to read, Mordecai learns of this plot to destroy all the Jews, and he makes a public display of the distress that he's under. He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, And through an intermediary named Hathach, he is asked by Esther what's wrong. And he then in return asks Esther to reveal her identity and to appeal to the king to save their people. And so we're going to pick up in verse 10 where she's sending a message back. And today what we'll see is that Esther is called into action, but in order for her to act, she must first resolve her identity. And so Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'll begin in verse 10 and go through verse 5 of chapter 5. It says this. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. 
This is the word of the Lord. Go grab a seat and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people, that through it you tell us about who you are and what you're doing in the world. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And so as we open our Bibles now, we ask for your help. Would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There's a story about Paul Gustave Doré, the renowned French artist from the 17th century. He was traveling through Europe but had lost his passport. And so when he got to the border, he thought that he could maybe tell them who he was, they might recognize him and let him through. But the guard said, no, no, every day we have people coming through here claiming to be people that they're not. I'm not going to let you through. And Doré continued to insist that he was who he said he was, and the guard had an idea. And so he gave him a pencil and a piece of paper and said, draw these other travelers here and we'll see. And with a quickness and a quality that only would be possible by a few people, Doré drew the scene in front of him and the guard said, okay, you are who you say that you are. In many ways, he was able to prove his identity by his actions. And this is what it is like for us as God's people as well. Our actions are an expression of our identity. In the story of Esther, it will be her identity that leads her to action. Her identity will invite her to trust in God's character and lead her to act on behalf of her people, even when all feels lost. And one of the key features of the book of Esther is that God's name is never mentioned directly. But still, the character of God is seen. The characters in the story act as if God is real, especially when they remember their own identity as his people. And so here's the primary message of the sermon for us. When God feels most absent, he shows himself to be most faithful. There will be times in your life when God feels absent, where he may even feel silent, and today we are invited to trust that he is faithful and to see it most clearly when we remember that our identity is in him as his people. And so our outline today is threefold. First, we'll look at a call to action and then an invitation to trust, and finally, we'll see a reminder of our identity. So first, the call to action. The story of Esther inspires us by her courageous actions. Today's passage is the pinnacle moment of her bravery within the story. She's in a difficult and unique position to do something about the plight of her people. And in one of the most iconic lines from the entire story, Mordecai challenges her to ask herself whether she has come to her current position for such a time as this. When all feels lost... Does she see herself as an agent of change? Does she see God's hand in her opportunity to act? I said earlier that God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And this, call to, or this calls to mind the moments in life when God even feels absent for us which compounds the fears and the the helplessness that we might feel at times, making already dire situations feel even more dreadful to us. And through the example of Esther, even in the face of difficulty, we are encouraged to take action, to do so with humility and confidence. 
In the opening lines of chapter 4, Mordecai learns of the edict that was made to kill all the Jews, and in response, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he does so in a very public way. He's not hiding the distress that he feels. Tearing clothes was a common expression of need and suffering and repentance in this time. The tearing of fabric is a way of physically identifying with the brokenness of their lives. He is no longer wearing the clothes of a government official, but of impoverished and suffering people. And in his current state, Mordecai is unfit to be in the king's presence or the king's court, so he cannot enter through the gate, it says in verse 2. And word reaches Esther of what Mordecai is doing. Esther is still not aware of the edict, so they begin communicating through this intermediary. Esther learns of Haman's plot, and also Mordecai shares his desire for her to act on behalf of the Jews. In response, Esther reminds him of the danger there is in coming to the king without being requested. In verse 11, if you enter the court of the king without being called, it is a death sentence. However, there's one exception that we read about. If he holds out the golden scepter. The king has proven himself to be impulsive and severe throughout the story so far, but the mention of the exception gives us as readers hope for Esther. And after some convincing in verses 12 and 13, she agrees to go. But first, she and her women are going to fast and pray for three days, and she wants all the Jews in Susa to do the same. And here there's a distinct shift in Esther's character within the story. We see confident action, resolute trust, because she remembers her identity as one of God's people. In verse 16, she gives Mordecai instructions. Up to this point in the story, Mordecai is the one who had been instructing her. And now we see that she is the one who gives the commands. Go, she says. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast and do, or as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. In this moment of critical need and great danger, Esther gives us an example of action, and she does so with humility and confidence. She has confidence to take action. She resolves in her mind that she's going to do something about the situation, and in the opening verses of chapter 5, on the third day of the fast, she puts on her royal robes, she steps into the king's inner chamber, waiting to see how he will respond. In verse 2, he holds out the golden scepter and she wins favor from him. And this elaborate plan begins to unfold. In contrast to the impulsive and irrational behavior of the king and Haman throughout the story, Esther is patient and she is intentional. She invites the king to a banquet. She knows how much the king loves a banquet. This is at least the fifth banquet that's mentioned in the story so far. And at the banquet, rather than make her request known, she invites the king and Haman to another banquet. As the readers, we may grow impatient, wanting to see resolution to the story, but she moves forward with confidence and intentionality. She also displays humility. She knows that her plan will not succeed without God's favor and provision. So before entering the king's inner court, she and her young women fast and pray for three days. And she has Mordecai rally all the Jews in the city to do the same. Even though God is not mentioned here, they are clearly appealing to their God for help. 
In humility, Esther entrusts her plans to God, and she steps forward with confidence. Life in exile is, it does not mean for us inaction as God's people. God's people are people of intention and patient action, done with humility and trust in God's providential plans. There are all sorts of reasons for inaction in life. And so we might ask, why is it that we fail to act so often? In the case of Esther, she probably had all sorts of excuses. I'm sure it was tempting for her to want to do nothing, to hide in the palace. No one knew that she was a Jew at this point, so she thought, maybe I'll be safe. Why not just do nothing? Or perhaps she thought that someone else might be the way that God saves his people. Why not wait for someone else to act? But as Mordecai says to her, perhaps God had put her into the position of queen for such a time as this. And let me ask you, where has God put you in this moment in history? How is God calling you to act on behalf of his kingdom? It is easy to think that someone else might act, but what if God is calling you to be the agent of change that you want to see in the world? There is a psychological phenomena called the diffusion of responsibility in which people are less likely to take action when they are with others who they think could take action instead. A related phenomena is known as the bystander effect. It became a source of study after Kitty Genovese was murdered in New York in 1964, and a report came out that 38 bystanders watched it happen and did nothing to stop it. Even though this report turned out to be inaccurate, it prompted decades of study into why people do not take action, especially in the presence of others. The diffusion of responsibility theory gives us insight into why we don't act, but it is not an excuse not to act. In the midst of the civil rights movement, one of Dr. King's most penetrating critiques were to good Christians who did nothing to confront injustice. From a jail in Birmingham, Dr. King penned some of his most powerful and lasting words. He said, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And this calls to mind the often quoted words of John Stuart Mill, bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. As women and men who follow Jesus in a post-Christian world, we are called to be people of action. And it may not be to fight massive injustice like Esther or Dr. King, but in our own subtle and significant ways, we are called to be ministers of reconciliation, to be agents of God's kingdom in the world. For you, it might mean that if you're in the area of business, that you are called to live with integrity in your actions. Charging clients a fair amount for the work that's been done, advocating for the good of all the employees in your organization, and not giving in to the lazy and idle attitudes that can often permeate our workplaces. If you're an artist, a student, a grandparent, or a neighbor, you know where God has placed you for such a time as this. And here's my appeal to you today. God's people are people of action, and we will do it with humility displaying the patience, prayer, and dependence upon God that we see in Esther. We'll also do it with confidence, displaying the intentionality and the resolve of Esther. And here's what I want you to do right now. Just very practically, 
If you have one of those Esther scripture journals or wherever you're taking notes, maybe just write a note in your phone if you want to, write down one step that you feel God calling you to take. Where is God calling you to action? Maybe it's a personal habit that you need to start. Maybe it's the courage to confess sin to a trusted friend. Maybe it's something you need to do in your workplace or in your marriage. Write it down and in humility and confidence, take a step of action. Now, if we ended right now, you might be inspired to take action, but we will all have missed the greater story that's unfolding. Because not only is there a call to action, an example in Esther, there is also an invitation to trust. And it's made all the more noteworthy because of the fact that God's name is not mentioned. The absence of God's name is a subtle way for the author to help us as readers think about God all the more. When God feels most absent, he shows himself to be most faithful. In the same way that the shadow reveals the sunshine, the way that darkness comes before the dawn, the absence of God's name forces the reader to look for him all the more. This is a creative and powerful narrative device. When Mordecai is making his appeal in verses 13 and 14, he tells her that she should not ignore the reality that even if she remains silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It is almost as if the author is going to great lengths to not mention God's name here. Why is Mordecai so confident that relief and deliverance will come for his people? It is because of the character of God that has been expressed over and over to God's people. Beginning with Abraham and Sarah, the miraculous birth of a son even in their old age, it continued through deliverance that God brought through Moses in Egypt. God had made a promise to his people that somehow he was going to redeem the brokenness of the world through the offspring of his people. And Mordecai knew the character of the God who saves which is why he can so confidently say that relief and deliverance will come. It is because of his confidence in the God who is not named that he can make this appeal. And his appeal to Esther is to remind her who she is. Her identity is as one of God's people, and this invites her to trust God, even when he feels absent. In response, she calls for prayer and fasting. And it is in this moment that we are all invited to trust in the God who redeems. The fact that he is not mentioned encourages us also to be honest about the moments when God feels absent to us. Think about the moments in your life when you might ask, where was God when? Or why did God allow? It happens in all the large and small stuff of life. When anxiety feels overwhelming, disaster strikes, relational tension emerges, or idols feel impossible to break. In Esther's story, she has several options on how she'll respond, most of which would be an attempt to avoid pain and suffering in her own life. But what we come to see is that she really only has one option as one of God's people when she is invited to trust in Him. So she steps into the darkness, trusting That on the other side of her fear, potential failure, and pain, there will be light and joy. It is so often when God feels most absent that he reveals himself to be most faithful. 
And it is because we have gone through the difficulty of doubt and distress that we see more clearly and are strengthened as God's people. This pattern has been baked into creation. When caterpillars, for example, turn into butterflies, there is an important step as it struggles to emerge from its chrysalis. Breaking out of the shell is difficult for it, but the process is crucial to developing the wings that are required for it to take flight. God strengthens us through suffering. And when he feels absent, when we feel the need most acutely, he shows himself to be most faithful. And here's what I know. When I asked you earlier what area of life you believe God is calling you to take action, whatever it is that you wrote down is tied to some type of anxiety or stress or suffering. And you are wondering, even now, whether God is going to show himself to be faithful to you Will God show up when we need him the most? Through the story of Esther, we are reminded of the character of God. He will show himself to be faithful. Even when he feels absent, we are invited to trust in him. And we can trust, especially when we remember our true identity as God's people. And so we come to the third part of the sermon, a reminder of our identity. The appeal that Mordecai makes to Esther in verse 14 might initially sound like a veiled threat. He says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. But this is not a threat as much as it is an appeal for her to remember her identity. Up to this point in the story, she's been able to navigate these two identities. She has been Hadassah, daughter of Jewish exiles, cousin of Mordecai, and she has been Esther, named for a foreign god, winner of the beauty contest, and queen of Persia. But now she must decide. If she does nothing to save her people, she will have turned her back on her Jewish identity and embraced her Persian one. And Mordecai here is saying, God will deliver the Jews like he always has. If you turn your back on your Jewish identity, God's people will continue. We will endure, but the Persians will not. And your father's house will be lost to history. It will perish along with the Persians. His challenge to her is one of identification. If she identifies with God's people, then she has no choice but to act. Like the French artist, Doré, her identity will be proven by her action. This is not a threat for Mordecai. It is a statement about the reality of the world. Identity is essential to what it means to be human. Where we find our identity leads us to action. And this is one of the ways that we are at odds with the assumptions of our current cultural moment. We live in an age where the freedom to choose our own identity is massively important to people. Absolute autonomy to choose is a high value. In fact, there's even a subtle message that it is immoral and inauthentic to allow our families, our institutions, or our faith to impact our identity in any way. We live under a culture-wide illusion that we actually have the complete freedom to choose our identity and to define it for ourselves based on our own free choice. As if the average man walking the streets of Minneapolis has the ability to independently choose who they are any more than the Anglo-Saxon warrior had the ability to choose their identity in 800 AD. 
We are the product of various influences, and our identity is the result of these innumerable factors. And the question we must ask ourselves is what and who will define our identity? And let me illustrate our contemporary definition of freedom and help you see why real freedom is found when we let God define our identity for us. I have my son's guitar here. Oops. I don't know how to play this. My son is learning how. But if I turned it this way, with the strings facing me and the wood facing you, and I tried to play it, do I have the freedom to play it this way? Sure, I have the freedom to play it this way, but can I make any music? No, what if I turned it over and I strummed a little? Okay, I can't play anything, so I can make, I can make noise. Do I have the freedom to use a guitar this way? Certainly I do, but I don't know how to play it. In many ways, this is our culture's definition of freedom. But is it actually freedom? No constraints, no rules. I can do what I want, but I can't make any music. I'm not able to use the guitar for its intended purpose. This is not real freedom. In fact, I feel the pain of not being able to play you anything musically right now because I don't know how to use it the way it's supposed to be used. That's not real freedom. But what if I took some lessons learned the rules of the guitar, disciplined myself to be able to play the guitar like Maggie does or like Megan plays the violin, then I could make music. That is real freedom. The paradox of freedom is that I am more free when I live within the definitions of the designer, when I let the creator determine my identity. I am the most free. And when it comes to Esther... Was she free to reject her Jewish identity and as a result, free to hide within the Persian court? Sure, she was. And much of contemporary thinking would suggest that is precisely what she should do. Why let the religion of her parents dictate how she responds? Why let the pressure of her cousin force her to risk her life? But in the end, it was not the religion of her parents or the pressure of her cousin. She had the freedom, or it was not the religion of her parents or the pressure of her cousin that led her to enter the king's court. It was her identity as one of God's people because she understood who she was and she understood the design of God. She had the freedom then to follow his design. She stepped forward as a source of salvation for God's people. Esther is invited here to trust God when she remembers her identity And that is why she had the courage to act, even when God felt absent. And at this point, we are all challenged to do the same, to ask ourselves, how does our identity as God's people give us the freedom to act in accordance with God's design? The definition of freedom our culture offers is not actually freedom. It is confusion. It leaves us with a life we don't understand how to live, like a guitar that we cannot play. The remarkable thing about understanding our identity is that God does not only invite us to identify with him, but he has chosen to identify with us. In the passage, Esther was distant from her people. She could not identify with them. She didn't even know of their suffering until Mordecai told her. She was at a distance, and she had to decide, was she going to identify herself with God's people? In this way, Esther is not so much an example for us as she is a picture of Christ. 
When God was at great distance from humanity because of our rejection, he came in the person of Jesus. And our invitation is to identify with him. It is made possible because he has identified with us first. When we compare ourselves to the characters of this story, it's natural to want to think of ourselves as Esther. There's much we can learn from her example, but in reality, we are more like Mordecai and the Jewish people in Susa, who feel helpless, tearing their clothes, collapsing in sackcloth and ashes. The impoverished state of their clothes helped them to identify with the impoverished state of their lives, the reality of their death sentence, and their need for God's intervention. So they appealed to Esther to identify herself with them, to become the agent of deliverance, the pathway of salvation. And at great risk to herself, she stepped into the king's throne room as a Jew. She chose to identify with God's people. In so many ways, God has done the same thing through the person of Jesus. He came and not only risked his life, but he gave his life. And he stepped into the throne room of God and took the just penalty on our behalf. He took on human flesh, identified with humanity, so that through faith in him, by trusting in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, we can identify with God. Our call to action as God's people flows from our identification as his people, which was made possible because Jesus came and identified with us. When God feels absent, When it is hard to act, we know that he is never actually absent because he came to be with us in Jesus and his spirit now lives inside of us. If God chose to identify with us when we were in sin, how much more will he be present with us now in our suffering? When God feels absent, we can remember our identity in Christ and we will see more clearly that God always shows himself to be most faithful to us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.